Safety Podcast. I listen to the fucking best! So you were saying? Oh no! So you know, we we met in junior high. I don't think we hung out that much in junior high. I'm sure I don't actually remember. I know we hung out quite a bit. And if you remember junior high, uh, we had to spend seventh, eighth, and ninth grades in junior high, and tenth, eleventh, and twelfth in high school. They split it up the ninth grade. This is the same thing that Jim was saying, Jim Brown. Yeah, they split it up. And I had forgotten that. I I thought you know ninth grade we were in. North high school. Lind- North Lindenhurst ended up going to the high school. South Lindenhurst, where you were and I was and Jim was, ended up going to ninth grade, which was not a bad thing actually. We were, you know, we ended up having. You know, so just, does that mean Mike Nicolosi, who lived in North Lindenhurst, would have probably been in the high school? I'm pr- fairly certain I did not meet Mike Nicolosi until um, until high school. Because here's the thing that is interesting, and I'm glad we're talking because I always thought that he had gone away on summer vacation and come back to high school in, let's say, ninth grade, having lost 100 pounds. But it makes more sense that I didn't see him for a year. We weren't in school together. No, I I don't think I knew Mike Nicolou. I might have known him. I don't know. Maybe we had a passing interest in junior high. I don't remember. I don't think, you know, I'm fairly certain he would have gone to... Well, here's uh, the thing about Mike Nicolosi in junior high school. In my memory, he was the fattest kid in he was fat. high school. No, look, that, here's how Mike, I don't say Mike bonded, but when Mike had any conversation pre-music, pre-punk rock, he was a comic collector. And there was yeah. a store in Lindenhurst that we would both go to, mm. and occasionally I would run into him in that store. And there's no question, Mike was large. I mean, yeah. he, was a, he, was, he, was, he was an extraordinarily large man. And Morbidly he was, obese. He, he was. I mean, yeah. he, he wasn't the whale level, but he was, he was right. up there. He was, he was going in that direction. Right. Right. But he wasn't, you know, I don't remember him being any kind, you know, he, he was a friendly guy. He was not an aggressive guy, I thought. No. We, 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 I, don't, I remember we had several conversations about comics. Don't ask me which ones. But, you know, like every kid that age, I collected comics and so did he. And there was a certain store on on Wellwood Avenue that would carry the comics that I would run into him every once in a while and yeah. we'd have a passing conversation about comics. And then that's that's all I, I knew. And then you actually became a closer friend with him than I did. And because and then the music well, thing happened. The way I have been writing the story is Mike and I meet in the cafeteria and the thing that we bond over is Mad Magazine because I had like a Mad Magazine with me and he you know, saw it, and maybe I sat down next to him because the other thing that I keep thinking is maybe I wanted to be friends with Mike because he was fatter than me, and it sort of took the attention off how fat I he was. Did, he did wear like t- you know because you post a lot of pictures from high school these days, you know, and it's funny. Uh, you actually don't look that bad in high school. I mean, you have, well, you have the long hair, you have a bit of a yeah, belly, you know. Right. But Mike was Mike wore these tent-like T-shirts. He was, if I remember, he again, did. You know? They wore the pocket tees that looked like they came from J.C. Penney. Ex- I don't know how they you know? bought them. Extra, extra, extra large. They he were was big. A- he, was, he was a big guy. Yeah. And I remember they were, you know, like his belly would still hang out the bottom, for instance. Yeah. You know. But the thing about being a fat kid back then is you didn't have to be, like, especially fat, like morbidly obese. You just had to be fat. And you would still get targeted by other kids and mocked well, and you know. ridiculed. And you'd still have to go through the humiliation of like a skins versus shirts game, like you know. I remember feeling like, oh, please don't make me a skin. 
Please don't make me a skin. And then you'd be a skin, and you have to run around with your fucking belly flopping. I, I can't speak for, uh, for for New Jersey. I mean, I, I, this is my adopted home, but, you know, Long Island, you know, there are horrible memories of that Long Island as well. I mean, I have my own weight issues. Not as much as some people, but of course. Yeah. Long Island was a very unforgiving place. And it, I yeah. think my understanding of Long Island is it still is. Yeah. I, you know, it, um, I, I just, I have... A quick sidebar. I've lived here now since what am I? I'm sixty one. I've lived here pretty much continually since since I uh, left college. So say like in twenty four, I was in Arizona. So I've lived here almost forty years. I've been at Rutgers for thirty years, you know. And I talk to people all the time. They're like, "Well, how bad can Long Island be?" I said, "Look, Long Island just New Jersey just does not have the same level of provincial hostility." Yes. That Long Island has. That's the word I keep using is provincial because it was a provincial The, the phrase that I use real quickly is that, you know, I haven't done that much traveling, but I've done a little bit and I've been in some dangerous situations. But I've never felt more um, fearful or in element of danger than in Long Island when I was younger and walked into the wrong bar and didn't, didn't belong to the right volunteer fire department or something. There was, I didn't find anything welcoming about Long Island. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a generalization. But I just find New Jersey a lot more welcoming, and it may be something... I think I know why. I have a theory. <laughs> because I've been doing a lot of thinking about this myself. But Long Island was a very tribal place. And you're right. If you weren't in the right tribe, then... I mean, because Long Island, when you think about it, has a lot of different um, levels of wealth to it. You know, out east, you got the Hamptons. On the North Shore, you've got wealth. Uh, you had fucking farmers... We were in this blue-collar, sort of working-class town on the South Shore um, where, you know, if you were in the police force or on the fire, in a, you know, fire department, whatever, you were a blue-collar, working-class guy. And you might have felt a lot of sort of hostility towards anybody you perceived as not being, you know, hard-working mm -hmm. guys. I'm a hard-working guy. I knew a lot of people like that growing up. And, you know, and then Nassau County was a completely yeah. different fucking world. I, didn't, I don't know what went on in Nassau County, but Long Island was very tribal. New Jersey, and this is to make my point, New Jersey is the laughing stock of the nation, routinely mocked more so than California or any other place. New Jersey is the butt of so many goddamn jokes, and that binds everybody in New Jersey. <laughs> so everybody is bound by that. But you can't say the same thing about Long Island. Long Island is too disparate, if I'm saying that word properly. And so that you can't make a good Long Island joke. But New Jersey, forget it. You can, you can end a lot of jokes with New Jersey. It was in New York. I'll do one for you right now. My girlfriend told me to kiss her where it smells. So I drove her to New Jersey! I mean, you're going to make that joke with Long Island. You're going to make that joke with Long Island. I'm making a point. It isn't about the joke. <laughs> It's not about the joke. I know it's not about the bad joke. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's an article in the New York Magazine, 1993. You have to see if it can figure The Devil is in Long Island. I'll send it to you. Oh, it's about, yeah, the breeding oh, you, ground for you, serial yeah, killers. You read I read it. it. Yeah, I, read yeah. the, I read it recently. Yeah, but yeah. to go back the, to you and I and Linderhurst Junior right. High School and being 12, because the other thing that I'm trying to remember properly is like, because I, I ended up becoming best friends with Glenn Katz. Glenn taught me a good object lesson in envy because his whole family like self-destructed before my eyes. And I used to think that they were the wealthiest people in Lindenhurst. They had an you know, automatic garage door opener. 
His father would get a new Lincoln Continental every year. His father was a lawyer. They owned a boat, you know. And then the whole thing just sort of self-destructed, and he ended up uh, having this tragedy. So, I, I mean, the other thing that, you know, I need to talk to people who were from there and went through the place together is, like, did you have any sense of what was going on in people's families back then? You'd go and visit your friends. Would you be, like, no. thinking I, no, about... No, I was very clueless then. I yeah? I was very clueless then. Um, you didn't I, think about uh, what are these adults up to? I, I honestly didn't. I, I mean, you asked me to go back, and I, I didn't. I was um, I look. I was more interested in fun, you know, and in, in girls back then. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I didn't have a girlfriend in high school. I made up for that in later life. But, yeah. Um, so I've been, uh, and then well, I, you did wear those crocheted vests <laughs> and those big medallions. I tried. And, I tried. The bell I, I tried and, different looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but. Um, no, I, I, once I found a home with theater, that was fine. That worked for All me. All right, well, let's talk about that because I w- I've been trying to remember Mr. Monsell properly. And what goes back mind, to Mr. Monsell? I mean, there was also the Charles Street Players and they write their own play. Uh, but he was the director of the comedy. He, yeah, he, Merrill, he was a Mr. Merrill. He was a very boorish man, actually. Oh, Mr. Merrill. I forgot yeah. Mr. Merrill. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, if you remember, um, the only time I, the time I really ended up getting involved with the Charles Street Players was actually in ninth grade when they did a show at the junior high and actually had a bum knee. That's when I had this weird skiing accident. And I actually did a show with a cane. I, I, I didn't, you know, I'm a decent actor, but I'm not a singer or dancer. And yeah. They, they put me in the role as one of these cops. And I remember having a really nice experience there. In fact, yeah. if you remember, that's the time I fell down the stairs and hit my head. I had to get in a... Oh, my God. Wow. But anyway, even when I left there, I realized the Charles Street Players wasn't really for me because it's more of a musical thing, and I'm not, that's not my area. And then we missed Mr. Mansell almost right away. I think I was in shows 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. The Thespians, 1895. The Thespians. Yeah, and I, look, he, he had a very... He didn't care if a show was over our head. We did a, we did a Luigi Parandello play, and I don't remember it. I thought it. it was John Guar. Wasn't there like a John We Guar did. Well, that, that was another play we did. But right. the first play I did with him was a Parandello play. I'm sure I was terrible. But it was a play that high school really didn't have any business doing. Um, I always thought I was great. I loved being on the stage. And, and see, for me, there were a couple of things that led to my radio career. Like the ingredients of being on the radio and being paid to be on the radio. It, one of those things was, you know, getting over the fear of performing and being on stage. So that's like Mr. Monsell. The other one is being able to talk to anybody. And that was like telemarketing jobs. Lots and lots of telemarketing jobs. And the other thing was not really giving a shit. And that was like punk rock and hardcore. That was playing music with the nihilistics. And so all of those things are, are in there. And, and they're all tied in with, you know, Mike and that particular place. But... You know, Mike is that guy that you met in the comic book store who's like sweet and shy, generally friendly, you know, happy-go-lucky almost, and he loved his father. And so when Gaspar Nicolosi, his father, he didn't die in the crash, and he was laying there apparently internally bleeding, and the hospital didn't know, and he died, and then Mike's family sued the hospital for malpractice. I don't know if they prevailed. I don't know if they got any money from it. But Mike went in his room, like, locked himself in, and I swear to God, he was in there for, like, a week. He couldn't get in touch with anything. And when he came out, he had the lyrics for all these songs that became the first nihilistic song. Well, that's pretty impressive. You know, 
I, so, I, I visited Mike. Um, you know, obviously, I didn't have that much ties with him after college. I mean, I did visit him once. I have a very vivid memory of that visit. You know, we, we, we what argued. What year would this have been? That's an excellent question. I don't know. Uh, let's assume late 80s, okay? Oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, here's what I know. I visited him not at his house that he owned, but the house he grew up in. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. So that's how... But, he, you know, there was a co- comment that he made to me, made, made to you, that sticks in my mind. We talked about his father. And this is a comment. You know how you say, you know, you hope I never die that way? That's how my father died. Yeah. That's yeah. what he said. He said his daughter died in excruciating, continuous pain for over a very, very long period of time. Well, I do remember, like, it was weeks between the car crash and when his father died. I think so it was longer than that. It might have been a month. I mean, who knows? But the idea that, you know, he was bleeding internally. There was a lot of, lot of resentment there, right? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, it led to all of those early nihilistic songs. After death, you rot in the mud, rot in the mud, rot in the mud. After death, well, you I, rot in the mud. And I got nothing you can comment on that I can. I will say that once... So Mike was a heavy, not necessarily on a happy man, but he was a fat, you know, fat... As far as I knew, he was a fat, happy man. I think he was putting a brave face on it. He probably was. Yeah. So he lost his weight, right? Uh, and then, you know, he was happy about that. He was always very unhappy... I, well, this is what I remember also. He was unhappy that he lost the weight. He was happy he lost the weight, but he was unhappy that he had those hanging flesh. And he used to t- I think he used to talk about it because there was even talk about, and I'm, I'm giving you, man, what I remember from high school, there was talk about some kind of fundraiser to find an operation that would remove the hanging flesh. Wow. Apparently it was very expensive. Wow. Uh, Chris, I'm going to remember, you're going to laugh at this when I say this. Yeah. But the person who I've talked about it a lot who knew Mike peripherally was Sharon Myers. Wow. So we should raise some money. Mike kept re- Mike referred, if you remember, to the hanging flesh on his on his everywhere. Yeah. To his my friend. I really yeah. love with Lou, my friend. He referred yeah. to it as my friend. Uh, but then, you know, he kept he ended up getting very thin. Did he, he get the operation? No, he never as far as I knew he never got the operation. But there was talk of trying to raise some money for the operation. Anyway, that was that, right? And then he kept getting thinner. This stuff is gold. Oh, but no, they, Sharon Myers, who was the Victorian, who really, who liked Mike. Right. She was the one who kept saying, you know, maybe we should go through, maybe we should try some kind of fun. I don't even know how the operation would have worked. I don't know how, it, how, how this kind of thing works. But the, he did refer to it. Uh, I'm gonna she was more than a valedictorian. She was an attractive uh, well, she girl. Was. She was. She Blonde was. girl. Yes, I had a big crush on her, yeah. too. But the thing was, she well, would... Well, I thought you had a relationship with her. I never had a relationship. Was I had it a, Jim Brown. No, no, that no, was no. Involved with no, Sharon? I was involved. I had an unrequited relationship oh, really? with her. She yeah. wouldn't requite. She would not requite. Wow. She, that's the That's the gal that broke. That's the gal that broke my heart and turned me into the woman I was where I am today. Mm-hmm. I should be thanking her in some ways. Wow, <laughs> Sharon. I hope you get to hear this someday. We used to say, "Sharon, my ass." I'll stop. Yes. Yes, we did. No, Sharon was the first gal I really fell in love with in, in high school, and she ruined that. Yeah. So you know, I've been going through. Um, uh, anyway, we, well, this is about Mike, not me. Well, uh, <laughs> it's also about me. So let's talk about me again yes. for a minute. So you were there to see my journey from like the, literally the first time I started playing guitar, which would have been like around the age of 12, to Cobra 
And I don't know if you were around for the nihilistics. Where were you in 1981? Anyone I was starting, well, I graduated, well, I just started college then. So okay. I was around for the senior You weren't year. around for the New York hardcore scene? The Not really. I was no. upstate New York in college. But I, uh, I saw Ithaca? you. Ithaca? Ithaca, yeah. Okay. Cornell. But I saw you guys play a couple of times. You played, uh, there was some play, you know, I, I have a memory of you guys playing with uh, the Headlickers. Mm. At some place, it was almost like a daytime show. I remember you guys played some weird daytime. Wow! The headlickers had a saxophone, if I remember correctly. Whoa! Um, and that's when you started using the phrase "big fun" when they played. Oh wow! I think I seen you guys play like three or four times. I managed to squeeze that in, well, but not none of your New York shows. I only saw your Long Island shows. Yeah. Well, um, I like what I saw. You you clearly have a lot of power in the band. I mean, yeah. I mean, people. You it, and the Nihilistics. People still talk about that record with some, you know, reverency. First of all, and I, this is not an exaggeration, uh, that record, the cover of the LP, maybe one of the greatest covers of all time. Oh, jeez. Really? <laughs> wow. Hmm. I mean, the black cover with the yeah. red lining and, yeah. you know, and just the nihilistics. It's a fantastic cover. It really did define what your sound was all about, I thought. Oh, wow. Well, that's Sandy, Mike's girlfriend at the time. She was she came up with the graphic, you know? She did. I mean, I, I, I saw them... But, uh, and what was that cover band that Mike used to go see? Um, um, I don't remember the name of it. They would play like the Motown covers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would do like the express way to uh, your yeah. Happy rest of your remember, life, you yeah. marry again. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. the thing was, Mike would go with her. He'd say, oh, yeah, Sandy likes the Motown stuff. Mm -hmm. And they would play regularly. And they were actually, if I remember correctly, a very, very, very good cover band that I They were great. I remember going to see them uh, several times. And I only wish I knew yeah. who the fuck they were. And Mike brought, Mike brought his girlfriend a couple yeah. of times. So. Sandy, who Sandy. I've also interviewed. I talked to her at length. Sandy, I didn't have any. I only. I remember her dancing to those dance in the Motown bit. What happened to him and Sandy? They seem. They seem like a great. I'm going to tell you because oh. they were supposed to move in together. Yeah. She, she talked to me for a solid ninety minutes. She was a, a very slight gal. If I she was like ninety eight pounds. Yeah, and Mike know? was. You know, Mike was still an imposing figure. Yeah, but she, I like Sandy. I always like Sandy. But she, uh, she and Mike were supposed to move in together, and then like two weeks before the date, he calls her up and tells her he can't. I can't move in with you. Okay, why? She that's the thing. Like she never found out why. She could only Mike ever tell you hypothesize. No, I he don't He never discussed him. the relationship with you? No, I don't remember him ever telling me he, he was gonna move in with her. I don't remember that at all. You know it was just during a period when Mike was maybe, you know, exploring his sexuality and wanted to like sleep with other women? Uh yeah, it's quite possible. It's quite possible he didn't want to get that serious because he was young and he thought the band might be taking off and he didn't wanna I remember um, it being very I remember her really liking that Motown cover band. And Mike, would, that was his gift to her. He was like, yeah, yeah she likes it much, so I'd bring her to see this band. Right? Oh, Mike probably enjoyed it, too. I'm pretty sure he... He loved, you know, that all that shit. Build Me Up Buttercup. He used to play those records, you know? When Mike lost the way... Harold, Melvin, and the Blue Notes, for yeah. Christ's sake. When Mike lost the way and became sort of like the seminal punk rocker, where he found his world, I mean, his personality did. It was a hardened personality... But we saw through it. We had some good... I, Chris, I wish I You're missing a crucial element. Go ahead. Alcohol. So Mike no, okay. became a drunk, basically. And, and we couldn't do a show without him drinking a six-pack or more by himself. Stage fright? I don't know if it was stage fright. I don't know if it was like morning. He was in some kind of weird morning and he was self-medicating. I don't know what the you fuck... You think he was a straight-up alcoholic? Um, I th I do think if a if the definition of alcoholic is somebody who drinks to the point where they can't function, yes. 
Or somebody who has to drink, also. I think I hung out with Mike a couple of times, just he and I. I don't, Chris, I can't give you details. Pre, you know, pre-real nihilistics, we had a few drinks. He didn't get horribly drunk. We had some good times. So one, you know, so one, one or two times we did this. And I can't, I, I can't give you details. I wish I could. Uh, but I wasn't around for the nihilistics days. You're right. I was in college. Uh, yeah. You guys sound like you had some good times. Well, that's the thing is that, you know, again, I mean, trying to write all of this down from memory is very difficult. You don't, like, people are, like the newsletter I just sent out today, the Substack was about how, you know, um, people have been saying, well, that didn't happen in 1981. That happened in 1982. And I'm like, okay. They got to get it. You know, they got to get over that's, I, I got to, you know, I'm, I'm basically writing a story about me and Mike. And what I want to know, the central mystery is how did he go from that naive, Sweet kid, you know, and the elements that turned him into this person that had his hands clamped around my neck and his knee in my chest. Put put, put, put it in perspective. What year did Mike die? What year did Mike die? Mike died in 2011, if memory serves. For some reason, I thought it was earlier than that, but all right. Yeah. All right. Uh, How did he die again? He had uh, esophageal cancer. All right, he died of cancer. All right, 2011 is not, it's only 12 years ago. Yeah. So, what's your point? I thought it was I thought it was earlier than that. Yeah. So I mean, he had, he had created a whole life for himself. Yeah. Marriage. I mean, was, was he was he playing any music? Did he have any musical interest at all for tw- when he? I mean, how, how did he end up leaving the nihilistics? Um, I don't know. And Ron has never discussed it, and I don't really feel like asking Ron. You know, because you Ron, left before he did. Well, here's what happened, and what I'm putting together from something you said earlier, because in 1989. They were contacting me, the guys in the, it Ron and Mike, if I remember correctly, wanting me to come back and work on new material with the idea of another record and more shows and touring. Was Mike a you member know? at that time? Yes. And he it was all the original members. Uh-huh. It was me, Troy, and you know, Okay, that makes sense. And, I, and I'm wondering if maybe it's because after he saw you, because you said you ran into him in the late 80s, you two hung out. And I'm wondering if he was one like, visit. It was one know, visit. I can't. Well, I, I probably didn't. You might have, you know, made him remember me because he, had, you know, they hadn't been in touch with. I'm me sure for I said good things. About three him. years. So, so the long and short of it is, I went back. We rehearsed all these songs with this guy Ajax, uh, Ajax, who had this studio called Meat Market Melodies, and we worked up like five or six songs. I think three of them were old songs we had never recorded. Three were new. We recorded the songs. And Mike would show up at these sessions and get increasingly drunk, you know? And as time went on, he was so the original, Wait, they see the original lineup recorded music in 89? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does it oh, exist? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, that's one of my podcasts, the Nihilistic Book co- Oh, that's podcast. the one you should... Okay, you posted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it was ever released? Uh, well, that's the thing. They did release some of the stuff that I played on, but they never told me, and I stumbled on Who that Who wrote those songs? A few you, years later. The band wrote those songs? Uh, well, we... A lot of times the Nihilistics wrote songs together, like Mike would come in with an idea for a riff or lyrics, and we would have to build a song around one of those things or both of those things. And so the songwriting was collaborative. We would also change lyrics so what happened? if we had Let's to. Move forward. So what happened? The band, did you play it any night alive anywhere? No. Uh, what happened is, and I'm, it's interesting because if you know the band Sheer Terror, this guy Paul Bearer, he uh, was he still plays an early. Yeah. yeah, he leads a band called Sheer Terror, but he was an early Nihilistics fan when he was like 15 years old. And unbeknownst to me, he was there at Meat Market Melodies when this shit was going down. So like he witnessed 
the arguments between Mike and I, and he saw like the breakdown of the whole thing. And I'm going to go talk to him next week about that to find out exactly. But would what Mike happened. have animosity towards you? Um, because I, I moved off of Long Island, I left, and we were we were friends. I, I think I was his best friend. But when the opportunity presented itself for me to leave my mother's house, he felt some betrayal. Is that what it was? I do. I think that. I think. I, I do think that. I think that's also why he clamped his hands around my throat and tried to choke the life out of me. And I and at some point I remember him saying, and I'm not like this isn't like a, what do they call those recalled memories or whatever, but. Uh, when he sat back down on the couch and you know, he buried his head in his hands and he said, uh, you hate me now. You hate me now. And I was like, no, Mike, I don't hate you. I just don't know why you did that. But then at some point he said, you ruined my life. <laughs> so I was like, what year okay. did you leave Long Island? Uh, 1986. I moved to Tenafly, New Jersey. Were you guys hanging out? I mean, the Nihilistics weren't a band in 1986. Well, that's the other thing that happened is that after... The whole shit went down with them trying to get Ron's brother in the band to play lead guitar because they wanted to be more like Judas Priest. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't like that. down with that. And that was not unusual for hardcore bands at the time to go in the middle route. Right. right. Well, so I we had one... I remember one having one rehearsal with this kid. He came in with like a BC Rich oh, warlock. Oh, you told me about this. Yeah. And I, I did a not... a memory of this. I did not go for it at all. happy about it. And I probably made it clear to them that I don't want to do this. I'm not doing this. Would Mike have been happy with the heavy metal route if he went at that route? Mike was a huge heavy metal fan. Yeah. Huge. He I have listen, no recollection of that. He would listen to Scorpions and Iron Maiden and Judas okay. Priest This is new Black information Sabbath. to me. Yeah. So I can understand why he's upset. He, he, yeah. he, wanted to, he wanted to ride the metal wave. Well, um, you know, the thing that... Which is funny because he loved the hardcore stuff. Well, but what's funny is that that's the stuff that became really big when they melded the hardcore with the metal, and those kind of bands like Anthrax, you know, became huge. So I mean, Mike might have been onto something. I don't know, but all I know is at the time, I didn't like the idea. I didn't want to play with this kid with Ron's brother, and I just didn't want to do it. So like, was I, he a good guitarist? Or he just didn't like his style. I don't remember him being all that good. Number one. And I remember thinking, these songs are now a fucking joke, you know, so... It's funny with metal, you know, if you remember, Chris, uh, there was an interview a couple of times, remember Newsday, the Newsday interview? Mike always referred to Nihilistics as a folk band. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's funny, because I was looking for that article today to use as part of my newsletter. It's around somewhere. Substack, and I, it's not on the internet, it's interesting. Uh, too bad, I don't have it. Um, <clears throat> you gave me a framed copy of it. What happened to it? Home. It's oh, at home. Oh, so you do have it. I do have it, but I meant in a digital form that I, I could have incorporated into That's the newsletter. It's a long letter. digital, yeah. yeah. Newsday may not. Oh, good. I'm glad I gave it to you. You well, did. I'm a good friend sometimes. Sometimes. Well, not always. It's uh, funny. I have like three or four copies of that from three or four different places, but you're the only one that's framed. <laughs> so that's good. But he did refer to it as a folk band. You know, it's funny. So the whole point, I'm going to get really punk philosophical right now. So the whole point of punk music was DIY. Uh, you didn't have to do it. You didn't have to be that great musician. But I've always equated uh, punk music with country music because they're not great musicians, right? They have a sense of what, it, what they wanted to say. But when you talk about metal and say bluegrass, then it becomes about musicianship. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And whether you like it or not. But 
I, I think there's, I mean, if there's an overlap between, you can use this quote if you like it, you know, if there's an overlap between punk and country, there's a similar overlap between metal and bluegrass. So who was it that said, which country <laughs> artist said, uh, country music is great because it's about three chords and the truth? Remember oh, that quote? That, that quote's been around a long because time. Because that's punk rock. I figured, right, and that's I mean, that's punk rock. Well, it's three chords and the truth. And the problem for me, when they wanted to bring in Ron's kid, kid's brother, they were going to start doing these bogus, what I thought were bogus, corny wow. songs that were no longer the truth. They were about... We're gonna be like a met. We're gonna be like Judas Priest now. Did they want and, to like make money? That was that. Was there a commercial aspect? I mean, fuck if I know. It could I mean, you just, were there. You tell I, me. I was. I was there, and um, I think it was really because Mike had fallen in love with that kind of music, and that's the kind of music he wanted to do, and he was being very much influenced by these songs where there was a lot of lead guitar playing. Yeah, I, I didn't... You know, and I wasn't this, ever This is really... the first time that I've heard about Mike's interest in, like, the Scorpion instance and that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. I didn't, I mean, know, I didn't know he was a metal guy. I only knew him as a punk guy. You know, um, what is it? The Judas Priest song? Is it Judas Priest who did Run for the Hills or Iron Maiden? One of those? You ever hear that song? You know, that you ever listen to every, any No, heavy not metal? a lot. I, really? and I have friends that are metal heads. You should, you should explore it. You should be heavy metal curious because a lot of it's really good. I mean, well, Master of, of Puppets, it, I know that. Well, yeah, and that's Metallica, which I think was after, you know, our time. But he, Mike was definitely into, we both love Black Sabbath. For me, Black Sabbath. Well, uh, I mean, it's, let's face I it. I like Led Zeppelin. He didn't well, care. How do you feel about Motorhead? That Motorhead loved punk rock. Motorhead was one of those bands that bridged that line between heavy metal and punk rock. He should have used Lemmy as a, as a hero. That's, he would be alive I, today. I well, Lemmy, no, he died of an illness. Lemmy, I think, was a hero. Is your phone ringing? Or oh. Ringing? Loyalistic podcast. Nihilistic's in a fucking bust! Yeah!